Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study. Father, we're thankful for your word, that your word bears with it and comes with a certain stamp of authenticity because it is your word. When you have spoken in history, there has been no doubt that you are the one who is speaking and your voice is self-authenticating. So therefore, when you speak, we should respond, but too often the response is, Lord, are we sure that's you? How can, how can we be sure that you are really speaking to us or some other expression of doubt, not because we truly doubt in the depths of our soul, but because we seek to avoid what you are saying, seeking to avoid the truth of your word. Father, we pray now that as we study your word that God the Holy Spirit would help us to understand the things that we study, to see the principles that underlie the historical incidents that we look at, and that in, under his ministry that these principles will be applied as they need to be applied in each of our lives and in each of our thinking. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 18, and we'll continue where we left off last time. Now, last time I focused on the issue of security. We'll continue that because this is an underlying factor within the episode facing Hezekiah, even though the situation that, that they're facing historically in Second Kings 18 through 20 is a national crisis, a military crisis that threatens the very existence of, of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah in the Old Testament, we still face those same kinds of crises today. It may come in the form of a, of a national crisis in the history of the United States. It may come in the form of, a, of an environmental or natural uh, disaster that may come in the form of, of storms, uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, things of that nature. It may come in the form of an economic crisis, whether it is national, international, or personal. Uh, we all face certain kinds of crises that threaten the security that as limited, finite, rather impotent little creatures that human beings are that scare us to death and threaten our very existence and security. And so we're constantly looking to something or someone off in the wrong place to find some measure of stability, happiness, security. And so part of this is what's exemplified in the, the episode that's described in these, uh, in these three chapters. Now, I started off last time with the principle that we never know when we will face a crisis. We could face any number of crises on any given day, small or large, and there's no Warning given. We just wake up one morning and there's something that's happened uh, nationally, internationally, or we're on the way to work and there's an accident or all of a sudden there's a medical problem. Who knows? Uh, that's the nature of the crisis. We are, they, they hit us uh, when we least expect it. And the, 
issue is how do we face those crises? How are we going to handle them? Where is our source of security? Or in other words, in whom do we trust? Now, in our nation, to take a national example, we have a motto in uh, God We Trust. This is put, has been put on the coins that have been uh, manufactured, and it has been uh, chiseled into the uh, walls of our historical uh, buildings, such as the Capitol uh, building in, the, uh, in Washington, D.C. It's one thing to say, in God we trust. It's one thing to say that we are a believer in the Scriptures and we believe the promises of God. It's another thing to really trust God when things are going very badly and when we seem to be that we are going to be overrun by the circumstances of history or the circumstances of our lives. And so we must ground ourselves in something that has enduring, everlasting stability, something that is outside of creation that can give us real hope and security, and that can only be in God. But too often it's so easy for us to put our hope and trust in human beings, to put our hope and trust in human institutions, to put our hope and trust in anything other than in God. Now, in this whole situation that the southern kingdom of Judah is facing in 2 Kings 18 through 20, when the Assyrian Empire has been moving southwest into the area of of Israel and Judah. They'd conquered Israel already in 722, just about uh, 19 years or so before the events that we're uh, studying in this chapter. And so they know the power. They know the destructive force of the Assyrian Empire, and they were uh, scared to death. You can just imagine what impact this must have had economically, what impact this must have had in terms of commerce, business, trade, because for a a number of years uh, during this time from 722 when the northern kingdom of Israel was uh, destroyed by Sargon II all the way down to the invasion by Sennacherib, you've had two or three different times when the Assyrian army has come uh, waltzing through the Middle East to uh, discipline various city-states, the Philistine city-states going to, into battle against the uh, Egyptians and the Ethiopians. And, and it just isn't good for business. It's not good for stability. And, and you're, you just don't feel real good about yourself or your future when uh, things like this are going on. And there are times when uh, several hundred thousand uh, of your fellow countrymen have been taken captive and transported to who knows where across the world, never to see their homeland again. And so we looked at the, the uh, everlasting principles, the eternal truths that are embedded here in terms of how Hezekiah personally and prepared the nation for himself personally and for the nation, how they were prepared in order to face the crisis. And that goes back to the fact that when he became the king, he cleansed the temple. He had to uh, open up the doors because they'd been boarded shut. They had to physically cleanse the temple of all the garbage and detritus that was in there, plus all the pagan idols that had been put in there. And then they had to ritually cleanse uh, the temple. Then they had to ritually cleanse the priesthood, and they had to restore the worship of God because it was a time where the people had forgotten how to properly worship God, and the Word of God no longer had a a place in the uh, national life of the southern kingdom of Judah. And under Hezekiah's father Ahaz, they reached one of the lowest points uh, in the spiritual history of the southern kingdom of Judah. It will get worse with uh, Hezekiah's son, uh, Manasseh. But Hezekiah is one of the uh, great uh, kings in the southern kingdom, and we looked last time at his evaluation given in verses 5 and 6. This is God's evaluation of Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. So of the kings of Judah, that would exclude David, who was the king of the United Kingdom, uh, he was the greatest because of his focus on God. That's how God evaluates in terms of obedience to his word. 
And this is explained further in verse 6, For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded him. Obedience to God is measured by keeping his commandments. Love for God is measured by keeping his commandments. That's the objective barometer for our love for God. This is uh, stated many times in Deuteronomy, and it's also reiterated by the Lord Jesus Christ in uh, the Gospel of John and other places in the New Testament where Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's not legalism. It's not superficial, simply external uh, obedience Ritual obedience, it has to do with a uh, inner heart orientation and dependence upon God. Now, last time I pointed out, because it's important to understand this passage, that the word that is used for trusting God here is not a word we might expect for objective faith or trust in God based on perhaps the verb aman in the Hebrew, but it's the verb batach, which has to do more with having a sense of confidence or security to feel safe in God. That's the essence of this word batak, is to uh, feel secure in God. So he begins his reign with his security completely in God, recognizing that God and God alone is the fortress, the protection, the rock of security uh, for himself and for the nation Israel. Further defined in verse 6 by the verb I pointed out last time, debach, meaning to cling to God. So he has a complete, total dedication, focus, concentration upon God. And then we're told that the result of that is that the Lord was with him. And this meant that God is going to bless him in a number of ways because of what God had promised in the Mosaic law. He is not blessing Hezekiah because of some sort of uh, uh, quid pro quo. He is blessing Hezekiah because this was the condition of the of the Mosaic law. As God entered into this covenant with Israel, he said, if you obey me, then I will bless you, and if you disobey me, I will bring judgment upon you. And so this is not... Um, The obedience to the law wasn't a way of becoming saved. It was a way that a saved person was to live and a redeemed nation, remember Israel is viewed as a redeemed nation, was to live in order to fulfill the purpose that God had called them to. And if they failed to obey him, then God would bring divine discipline into the life of the nation in order to get them back on track. And so God blesses him in line with the mandates in the and promises in the Mosaic Law. I pointed out a couple of passages we should be reminded of, trust passages, Psalm 146.3, Do not put your trust in princes nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. It is not human institutions or human leaders that ultimately provide help or security. It's not political parties, political systems. It's not ultimately in the military or technology. It has to do with God ultimately is the one who protects us. When we are walking in obedience to God, when the nation is obedient to God, then there will be uh, divine protection and divine blessing. When the nation is in disobedience to God, then there will be divine discipline. Same thing in the personal life. Uh, Jeremiah 17:5 and 7 expresses this at a time, another time of national crisis in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. There's the contrast between the one who, bl- who trusts in flesh Trust in man and the one who trusts in God. We see that same contrast uh, here in 2 Kings 18 between Hezekiah initially is the one who's trusting in God and the way God prospers uh, him in verse 7. And this will be contrasted with what happens to the northern kingdom of Israel in verse uh, 10 and following as a result of their disobedience. Uh, Psalm 18.2 expresses the same principle. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Could we add any other metaphors here to strengthen the image that God is the sole protection for the believer and for the nation? 
that it is God and God alone who provides that protection that no matter what else you have, no matter how strong your military, no matter how robust your economy, no matter how great your technology, if God is not uh, for you, then none of that will matter. God plus one is a majority, and that's all that it takes. And if you don't have the right technology, you don't have the uh, strength of manpower, you don't have a robust economy or any of these other things, then then, and the other side does, God is the one who is still going to give you the victory if you are obedient to him. This is a point that God made in Leviticus 26. We've gone over this so many times, but we need to be reminded that in Leviticus 26 and 27, God is just telling Israel that if you obey me, then I'm going to do these things for you. If you are faithful to the covenant... If you are disobedient to the covenant, then these are the consequences. The worst consequence was the fifth stage of discipline, which meant that God would remove them from the land that he had promised to give them, that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel in 722. They are removed from the land. In 586, it will happen to the southern kingdom. Uh, the instance in Second Kings 8, 18 is just after the a defeat of the northern kingdom, and we'll see that in the next couple of verses. But here's the promise of God in Leviticus 26, 6 through 9. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. There is security both in terms of an internal security, that there's a reduction in crime and criminality, and so that there is security. Some of you remember the days when you could go to the mall and just leave your car unlocked and leave the keys in the car. I remember somebody visiting a Preston City Bible Church one time, and, and he had come from Ohio uh, and uh, up near, near Cincinnati, and his wife was with him. And he got out of the car, and he didn't lock the car. And his wife said, you need to lock the car. And he said, let me show you something. He had been in the country before, and he walked along, and he pointed out that the keys were in half the cars, and none of the cars in the parking lot were locked. Now, we just don't have that in a big city anymore. We don't have that kind of security, but that's what the Lord is talking about here. Um, Not only uh, is there going to be security in terms of uh, the internal nature and makeup of of the nation, but God says, I'll rid the land of evil beasts, And the sword will not go through your land. The sword is a metaphor for violence, for war, for assault from foreign powers. Not only that, but God went on to say that you will chase your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. He will give them military uh, power and defeat over their enemies, not because of their technology, not because of their strategy and tactics, not because of their training, but because ultimately the causative issue in history is the plan of God and trust in God and his, and his word. This is further explained in verse 8. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. See, it's not a matter of numbers, power, money, technology. It's a matter of relationship with God. That is the causative factor in the life of an individual as well as the life of a nation. We can't measure it. You can't go to business school. You can't go to uh, command and general staff uh, college up at Leavenworth. You can't go to uh, any of the military schools at West Point, Annapolis, or uh, Air Force Academy or Coast Guard Academy and learn this principle. They're never going to touch on it. But this, according to the word of God, is the ultimate causative factor. Verse 9, for I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. Nationally and individually, the causative factor, the ultimate causative factor in history and in your life is that relationship to God. And so we read in 2 Kings 18.7 that the Lord was with Hezekiah. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. This is a key issue, a causative relationship here, that because he's obedient to God, he rebelled against the king of Assyria. Both the northern kingdom and southern kingdom had been in a position of paying tribute to Assyria, who was the major power block at the time, off to their northeast, and under the 
threat of attack. They had uh, caved in both the northern kingdom until they were destroyed as well as the southern kingdom. Ahaz just kowtowed to uh, the northern kingdom, uh, I mean to the uh, empire of Assyria and and uh, paid them off all the time, uh, paid, paid that protection money. And so the Assyrian thugs were always a threat. But Hezekiah puts his trust in God, not in man. And so this gave him the moral and spiritual courage to do the right thing. This is the picture of Hezekiah at the beginning of his reign. And as a result of that, God then blessed him in terms of his military expansion and granting military security in terms of the enemies. Verse 8 says he subdued uh, he subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. And so he is uh, able to expand his empire. Now, here is a map, and you see the southern kingdom of Judah in the uh, sort of the center left, uh, just left of center there. There's a darker area there around um, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, uh, down to Hebron, and that's part of the southern kingdom of Judah. And then off to the left, that's that, that strip along the uh, coast there is uh, Philistia, very uh, similar to the uh, uh, Gaza Strip area, although the Gaza Strip today doesn't go as far north. You see there's a um, red circle on the far left that circles uh, Gaza, and then the town north of there is Ashdod. Ashdod today is in Israeli hands. Uh, Gaza is not. That is in the hand of the, of, um, uh, the so-called Palestinians and Hamas. Uh, Ashdod was the port where they brought in the um, uh, the Turkish, uh, the five Turkish ships that came in a, two or three uh, weeks ago that were attacked by the uh, Israeli SEALs and because they brought with them uh, terrorists who were, uh, or those who were seeking to uh, uh, exp- to uh, break the blockade around the Gaza Strip, totally within their legal rights. Uh, in international waters, they have a blockade that is also supported by Egypt because Egypt's no friend of Hamas because Hamas is an offspring of the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood is one of the most radical branches of Islam, especially politically, and they seek to um, uh, uh, destroy the regime in Egypt. They were responsible for the assassination of Anwar Sadat, and they... Um, would love to do the same thing to, to Mubarak. So the Egyptians are, are quite pleased to also participate in this blockade. But Hamas is a terrorist organization, and somehow the world just always wants to forget that. And so the whole world has turned against Israel in light of this recent episode. And uh, the United States and the present administration has sent such a mixed message to the world and to the Middle East and has not stood by it that the world perceives us as vacillating and that we uh, no longer are there uh, to provide any measure of help. And so in Israel, recent polls indicate 70 to 80 percent of Israelis do not believe they can rely upon the United States uh, at all in a crisis, that we won't be there for them uh, because we, we'll just we're, we're weak. We're like that broken reed that this this episode we're about to study uses to describe Egypt. See, in the time of Hezekiah, the uh, the temptation was to rely upon the armies of Egypt and Ethiopia to come to their aid, and they were both defeated by Sennacherib. See, the only help for Israel—that's the point God keeps trying to teach them in the Old Testament as well as us today, is that it is God's plan. The uh, Jews are God's chosen people. They have an eternal right to that land given to them by God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And their real security is not based upon uh, their alliance, their friendship with the United States or any other nation. It's based upon God's plan and purposes for that nation, and they will not go down uh, no matter what happens. That just isn't God's plan right now. Uh, but it's very interesting to watch what takes place on the international scene uh, as things go back and back and forth. But you need to really pay attention to this because what we're seeing for the first time since the uh, establishment and the independence of the state of Israel, we're seeing the weakest support from the United States and from this administration. And it's 
every time we've had administrations in the past that have uh, trended towards anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, whether that was under uh, Jimmy Carter or uh, Bush 41, uh, actually under Clinton there was a lot of support for um, uh, for, for Israel and probably the most favorable president to the state of Israel of the presidents was uh, uh, George W. Bush. But now we're in a weak time. Whenever we've been weak towards Israel, there have been a lot of problems, economic problems and uh, other problems, natural disasters, other things like that, that have hit the United States. And I think it's the same principle. God goes back to, always goes back to the Abrahamic covenant that those who bless Israel, God will bless and those who judge Israel, those who curse Israel, God is going to curse. And so we can always guarantee that we will be going through natural crisis, a national crisis when we are weak in our support for Israel. And that has always played itself out in the uh, history of the United States. So here we look back to the map. We look at the map down to the far edge of the map is Gaza. And God blessed Hezekiah so that he expanded the uh, control of Judah. They had lost bunch, a bunch of this territory under his father Ahaz and earlier kings of Judah because of their apostasy toward God. Part of the discipline was that they would, if they were disobedient, they would lose territory and they would be defeated, which is what happened. But under Hezekiah, they're able to regain territory and to reestablish uh, reestablish their security. And this is because uh, Hezekiah recognized the principle of Romans 8.31, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the northern kingdom of Israel had completely forgotten that. Skip down to verse 9, we see the contrast. Now, it came to pass in the fourth year of, Hez- of King Hezekiah, this is still, this is earlier. The chronology here is a little confusing and I'm not going to get into it because it's a, it's, it's ours and you'd still be confused. Uh, this measurement here comes from his, when he began his co-regency with his father Ahaz. So this would be about 722 BC in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, the Shalmaneser, king of Assyria came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Now, just about the time that they, uh, the northern kingdom was conquered, Shalmaneser died, and he's replaced by his son, Sargon II. And Sargon is the one who historically took, um, uh, took credit for having defeated uh, Samaria. Now, I want you to note that it doesn't say here that Shalmaneser is the one who defeated Israel. It just says that he's the one who began the siege. It doesn't say he's the one who finished it. Uh, it was Sargon who finished it. Now, this introduces us in the passage to the problem of Assyria. But I want you to note in verse 12 that we get the real, uh, the real issue in, uh, in their defeat. Uh, verse 11, then the king of uh, Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Halah and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, in the cities of the Medes. Why? Verse 12, this is your causative factor. doesn't have anything to do with, te- again, technology, education, social programs, none of the things that we look to as the real causative issue has to do with their spiritual life because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded and they would neither hear nor do them. See, they didn't even want to listen to the word of God. They didn't want to listen to the teaching of God's word. It was irrelevant to them. And the more a people or an individual becomes uh, hostile to God, negative to God, the more a person rejects God, the least they want to listen to God. You get people who, uh, just at the very fact that somebody cites a Bible verse, or at, at, at the, the most uh, innocuous setting, somebody at a football game holds up a sign that just says John 3.16, and you have some people who just go ballistic because somebody has entered their world and had the uh, uh, arrogance and the effrontery to even mention God in their presence. 
And we have so many people now in this nation that are so deeply entrenched in their rebellion against God that just the very mention of God, just the fact that there are people like us who exist in this country is an affrontery to them. And as far as they're concerned, we ought to be consigned to some sort of a, a loony bin somewhere and be completely re-educated because of our uh, devotion to God. Uh, you know, according to that view, uh, they would take almost everybody in the United States from World War II and previous and have to remove them from the planet. They can't even enjoy, they couldn't enjoy their freedom to be atheists if it weren't for uh, the fine and wonderful Christians down through the history of this nation from the uh, founding of the colonies all the way through the various wars. It was believers, it was Christians, it was those who were devoted to God who gave, who were, because of that, understood freedom, understood liberty, and were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. In two weeks, we have the 4th of July on a Sunday, and I will be going through again the spiritual lives of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. There is such a, uh, you know, propaganda tool among uh, most of the education uh, systems in this country to say that, that the founders of this uh, republic were all atheists or agnostics or at best deists. But that's not true. That is not true at all. The historical record is completely against that. The personal writings, testimonies, and what those men gave their money and their lives for, not just in terms of the founding of this nation, but in terms of the fact that there were many of them who were involved in and seeing that Bibles were published, that were, gave their fortunes to establish churches and Bible schools where people could be trained. It just flies completely in the face of the secular lie that is often taught today. So I'll be going through that uh, for our 4th of July. Now, we come to the tool that God used to defeat the northern kingdom of Israel, and that is uh, Assyria. And since Assyrian history has probably not been on your uh, most uh, <clears throat> popular reading list lately, uh, I just want to give you a little bit of a framework for understanding uh, the history of Assyria. Assyria was located in the area of... Uh, uh, of mo- the northern part of modern Iraq and part of uh, the northwestern or northeastern Syria today, and um, it, 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 basically the history of of, of, his- of Assyria was divided into three broad time periods: their early history from 2000 to 1400. You can think about that in terms of from Abraham to the Exodus. Okay, Abraham was about 2100. Uh, and the Exodus 1446. So just think about that. And the conquest began about 1406. So just think of that as the early history of Assyria. And then the Middle Assyrian period is from 1400 BC to 912. That's a little bit after the split of the northern and southern kingdom. That was about 930 BC, roughly. Um, I think, uh, give or take a few years. So the Middle Assyrian period would be from the, roughly the time of the beginning of the conquest of, 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 uh, of the land to the split of the kingdom in the northern and southern kingdom. And that ended with the, in Assyria with the uh, reign of Ashurdan, uh, the second. He's actually a transition uh, period as uh, Assyrian politics becomes stabilized again, and they began to expand under his son, Adad-Nirari II, whose dates are 911 to 891 B.C. So with him, uh, Syria begins to uh, reestablish itself. This is called the Neo-Assyrian period or Neo-Assyrian uh, Empire. Now, there are a lot of different strange names during that period, but I put four up here, or five, uh, what, one, two, five up here for you because you've heard these names, and they're somewhat familiar to you, and this will just give you a little bit of an understanding. The first is Shalmaneser III, whose dates are 858 to 824 B.C., and he began to look westward. He lusted after Damascus and the trade routes that ran up through uh, Judah and Israel to Damascus and then uh, up to Turkey, and so he uh, fixed his gaze on the west and uh, wanted to conquer the Arameans, 
and Damascus. He's the one that was defeated at the Battle of Karkar on the Orontes River, which is in northern uh, northern Syria, by an alliance of 12 Hittite kings, uh, the Arameans, and Ahab. King Ahab, whom we studied back when we were focusing on Elijah, uh, Ahab sent 2,000 chariots and 10,000 infantry for that battle, and he is mentioned uh, in an Assyrian text, and that's the first mention of an Israelite king in an Assyrian text. So that gives us docu- uh, an extra biblical support for the history that we find in the Scriptures. Now, what's interesting is Shalmaneser claimed to have won the battle, and he claimed that he won it in such a way that uh, was su- it was such a great victory that the corpses of the enemy formed a bridge across the Orontes River. But the fact is that he never really pursued that victory if he had won it, so it was probably a defeat, and he was just uh, trying to make make things uh, look good. Uh, in 841, we know that he received tribute from Jehu of Israel. Remember, Jehu was the one God called to bring discipline on the house of Omri, Ahab, and uh, it was Jehu who established his kingship, but he also paid tribute to uh, Shalmaneser III, and this is recorded on what is called the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser III. Assyria's fortunes were from that point on directly tied to Israel's as Israel, as Assyria was strong, um, then Israel and Judah became overshadowed by the power of Assyria. And then when Assyria was weak and became distracted by uh, internal revolts or the Babylonians as they began to rise to power, then that gave uh, uh, Israel and Judah an opportunity to try to break uh, break free. Now, the next key name is Tiglath-Pileser III. He's mentioned in 2 Kings 15.29 as the one who invaded the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Pekah, and he took a large number of Israelites captive uh, to Assyria. He, uh, Towards the end of his reign, he lost control. There was some sort of uh, revolt that took place in Assyria, and he's briefly replaced by Shalmaneser V. So if you look at the dates I have there, Tiglath-Pileser is from 744 to 727. Remember, 722 is when uh, the northern kingdom is wiped out. So Shalmaneser is a transition leader, and he dies in 722, and he's replaced by his son, Sargon II. Sargon II then is the one who is, took credit for defeating uh, defeating. Uh, Samaria, or the northern kingdom of Israel. Shalmaneser V is the one mentioned in our text here in verse 9. Sargon lives from 722 to 705. There's two or three different times that he brings an army down through uh, the Levant, down through uh, Syria, the northern kingdom, and to bring discipline to the uh, rebellious states uh, along the coast, the Philistines, as well as to defeat the Egyptians and the Ethiopians. He died in 705, bringing a power vacuum. And when he died, a lot of these countries out there on the fringe, Ethiopia, Egypt, the Philistine states, Gaza, Ashdod, Azekah, um, exercised their their uh, <clears throat> desire to rebel. And so Sennacherib had to come in to uh, bring a little discipline. And Sennacherib then invaded, and it's early in his reign in 701 that he uh, comes into uh, and uh, brings an assault and siege against Jerusalem. So we are told that their failure is because of their failure to obey the Lord in verse 12. And the focal point in the next few verses is going to be on these two areas I have circled, Azekah to the north and Lachish to the south. Azekah is right near the Valley of Elah, which is where uh, David uh, fought Goliath. And it is uh, we have some record of this time period. There's a little uncertainty as just when certain events took place because of different uh, different campaigns that were waged in this particular area, but we do have uh, historical records that confirm this. For example, there is a uh, well-known archaeological find of the Azekah inscription because it is found, let me show you, this is Azekah. The lower part in the foreground is actually the valley uh, of Elah. This is where this 
The one who took this picture is standing uh, near the area where David fought Goliath, and Ezekiel is one of the ridges. There was a village there at one time, uh, but it's one of the ridges where I believe the Philistines' army was gathered at the time that David uh, fought Goliath. This is looking down on the valley uh, from Ezekiel, looking down on the valley where uh, David uh, David fought Goliath. Now let me back up here. Here's the Ezekiel inscription. The last, uh, uh, the last two or three uh, lines we read about uh, Hezekiah. He says, uh, uh, I, "I conquered, I carried off its spoil. That is Ezekiel. I destroyed it. The city, a royal city, the Philistines, which Hezekiah had captured and strengthened for." Uh, for himself. There's also an inscription on one of the walls of Sargon's palaces at uh, Korsabad where he wrote, um, with my warriors who never leave my side in hostile or friendly territory, I marched to Ashdod, I besieged and conquered Ashdod, Gath, and Ashdod Yam, or Ashdod by the sea. So all of this occurred during the time of the um, uh, of the that we're talking about here at, in this section of Second Kings, Second um, Kings 18. Now there's another shot of the Valley of Elah where David fought Goliath. Uh, here we have Lachish, the tell at uh, Lachish, which is where the uh, Syrian army uh, had their headquarters. They conquered um, Lachish, and uh, there, there's some uh, uh, various uh, depictions of that on the walls. At Nineveh, showing the uh, torture that the Assyrians brought against those they defeated, and showing their uh, fight against the uh, people in Lachish. We also have a couple of prisms, the King Prism in the British Museum, that also uh, gives a historical record of this. And in one place in that prism, it states the high officials, the nobles, and the people of Ekron, that's in that same area, who had thrown into iron fetters Patty, their king, who, who was loyal to the treaty and oath with Assyria. So that shows their rebellion. They kicked out the king who was uh, uh, pandering to Assyria and had him handed over to Hezekiah the Judean like an enemy because of the villainous act they had committed, they became afraid. So this gives us, again, documentation that uh, supports what is the his- historicity of the biblical account. And then you have the Taylor Prism in the British Museum, which is very famous and, and because this records um, Sennacherib's Comments about the siege of Jerusalem, he said, referring to Hezekiah. Himself, I enclosed in Jerusalem his royal city like a bird in a cage. That's, that phrase is quoted everywhere, that uh, Hezekiah was pinned up like a bird in a cage. I laid out forts against him in order to repel him from going out of the gate of the city. His towns, which I plundered, he claimed to have uh, destroyed 42 walled villages and hundreds of unwalled villages and took over 200,000 Judeans captive and sent them uh, back to Assyria. Um, Sennacherib goes on to say, His towns which I plundered, I separated from his territory and handed them over to Matinti, the king of Ashdod, Patti, the king of Ekron, and Silibel, king of Gaza. And thus I reduced the size of his kingdom. And so he goes on to say that he paid, that Hezekiah paid him a tribute of 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver. Now, I want you to look down in the text, and we'll see that we, we saw Hezekiah's trust in God. We saw how God blessed Hezekiah. But what often happens when we are uh, walking in obedience and we become overconfident and we put our eyes on the flesh, and then comes failure. And this is what happened with Hezekiah, uh, beginning in verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatsoever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And so here we have... uh, in this documentation, the same amount of gold, 30 
uh, talents of gold. The text of the scripture says uh, 300 talents of silver, and here it says 800 uh, talents of silver. Now, 300 talents of silver is 11 tons of silver. 800 is probably an exaggeration. And 30 talents of gold is the equivalent of one metric ton of gold. And somebody there out there who's bright with numbers can figure out just how much that would be worth in today's, uh, today's uh, market. But this is a, a, a tremendous amount. Now, where did Hezekiah get this? Well, remember when Hezekiah began his reign, what did he do? He cleaned out the temple. He took, uh, he had tremendous financial resources. God had blessed him and he rebuilds the temple. He uses a certain amount of silver and gold in the, uh, rebuilding all of the furniture that was inside the temple. And now what is he going to do? He, instead of trusting God, he's going to pay off Assyria. And to do that, he's got to take it, take the, uh, the gold and the silver out of the temple. So he's going to rob God rather than trust God, and he's going to give that uh, to Sennacherib in order to buy him off, in order to get security that is not a lasting security. And this is the historic problem that we have as individuals and as nations, is that you only have two options. You can either trust in God or you're going to trust in man, one or the other. Uh, you can't blend it because whatever you blend is always going to end up, you're basically trusting in man, in human institutions, in human ability, in politics, in leaders, and that always fails. You will always be disappointed. Ultimately, man is nothing more than a broken reed to, uh, uh, to lean on. And on the other side, whenever you trust in man, you always do that at the expense of taking faith away from God. And when you do that, that is the essence of blasphemy. That is the essence of rebellion against God. You are either ultimately dependent upon God or you're ultimately dependent upon man. And when you're dependent upon man, you have stolen that trust and faith from God. And Hezekiah does it, of course, in a very concrete and financial way, in verse 16, we read that at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And so this leads to a defeat. Here I have a picture of what took place at the assault on Lachish. And it may be hard for you to tell. It's always hard when I set this up at home. Here is a ladder. You can see a uh, diagonal line there, and on that ladder you have people climbing, and this is a depiction of the Assyrian assault troops uh, climbing on their assault ladders over the walls of Lachish, and then there are also pictures of them uh, hanging and killing and torturing various uh, prisoners that they took from Lachish. So what's the issue? The question I started with, in whom do you trust? That is the causative issue in your life, and that is the causative issue in the life of a nation, any nation, our nation, any other nation, and it is the causative issue in the life of Israel in the Old Testament. That's the illustration, but the principle is true for us today. In whom do we trust? Is our trust in God or is our trust in man? Is our trust in our jobs? Is our trust in our education? Is your trust in a political leader, a political system? Or is your trust in ultimately in God? If your trust is in anything else, then God, what God will do is demonstrate that you can't rely on that. And that will bring you to some point of, of disappointment, judgment, uh, some sort of crisis in your life where God is trying to get your attention to realize that you can only ultimately trust in him because he is the only one who is trustworthy. Now, where this goes in preview of coming attractions, is that when Sennacherib brings his army to surround Jerusalem, he is going to send out his three key leaders, the Rabsaris, the Tartan, and the Rabshaka, and they're going to make the issue really clear. They're going to make it a, they're, they recognize that the issue is ultimately theological. It always amazes me how many people don't realize that in life. They don't realize that the ultimate issue in everything always comes back to God. Always. No exception, no issue can't be traced back ultimately to your view of God and your view of man and your view of creation. 
And they make it very clear because when they meet with the leaders of, of the southern kingdom of Judah, they said, look, are you going to trust in this God Hezekiah's trusting in? Uh, none of the other gods, none of the other gods gave any, any victory or protection to any of the other uh, cities or any of the other nations that we conquered. So why is your God going to, going to protect you? Your God's just another God like anybody else. And whenever somebody starts challenging God in that way, then they're going to be in trouble because God understands that ultimately the issue is his character and his promises. And so we're going to see Hezekiah make a spiritual shift at the end of that episode, and he's going to turn to God, call upon Isaiah to come and counsel him, and he will go to the Lord in prayer in chapter 19. And it is that prayer that really shifts History, because Hezekiah understands that the issue ultimately is God, and that's the same decision, the same issue we all have to have to come back to. And of course, uh, in our era, after after the cross, the focus is ultimately on Jesus Christ. He is the one who controls history. He is the one who controls the destiny of our lives and the nation. And we have to decide in whom we are trusting with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by this example from the Old Testament as we see that there is always failure when we put our trust in man or the uh, arm of flesh, that man ultimately cannot provide the solutions to life's problems, that man ultimately cannot provide happiness or stability or meaning in life, that Uh, stability only comes from our relationship with you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. Either he was telling a lie or he was telling the truth. There's no other options. If he was telling a lie, then his life was one of the most deceitful lives in all of history. But if he was telling the truth, then he is who he claimed to be, and then salvation is in no other, as the Scripture says. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.